we will uh, continue our study through a series that we started last week called Church Questions. Now, I think there are two types of car people, okay? There are two types of car people. Person number one is the type of person when they look at their car, is the car kind of comfy and does it get me to where I need to go? Okay, that's one type of car person. We all generally use vehicles in here, so we all fit in one of these categories. The second type of car person is the type of person I think is a little bit strange. Uh, They like to know what's under the hood of the car. Tell me how it gets me to point A to point B. I want to know enough about that car so that if something is wrong that doesn't get me to point B, I can open up that car and fix that car. And so if you get caught standing around about the size of engines in a particular car. The second type of person is the type of person whose ears perk up a little bit. They get a little bit interested. They like learning those under the hood details about these vehicles, whether it's uh, Fords or Chevys or Dodges or whatever your vehicle of choice is, new cars, classic cars, whatever. How many of you would say, I'm the first type of car person? I want it to be a decent ride and get me to point A to point B. Raise your hand. I'm the first type of car. Okay, how many of you would say, I'm the second type of car person? Let's talk shop. Okay, all right. You know, uh, if you're the first type of person, would you all agree with me that when you get around the second type of person and they start talking about leaders and, you know, cylinders and, you know, catalytic converters, and I'm, I'm just saying words I don't even know at this point, right? That, that maybe your eyes start glazing over, you know what I'm talking about? Because it's like, listen, sir, ma'am, I don't care. I just want to know that it gets me from point A to point B. I don't see the value of this jumbo engine versus this little engine. Just give me an engine that works, that I don't have to worry about other than my oil change every three months, right? Now, I think the same approach, the same mindset, the same feelings could be shared about today's topic. All of us care, I think to some degree, about the vehicle of the preaching ministry of the church. We all have some level of standards, you know, uh, heaven forbid someone preaches not the Bible, right? That should be alarming. Um, you know, if they, if they don't actually preach the Bible, we should have some concerns about that. If it's, you know, uber boring and I get nothing out of it ever, then that should bring some concerns. If there's no relevant application to my life, then that should be some concerns to me. And that's about the extent we might care about the preaching ministry, which there's nothing wrong with that. But what we're going to do today in our church question series is I want to, for, for a couple beneficial reasons that you may or may not be bought into, I want us to open the hood, okay? And I want us to talk about underneath the hood of the preaching ministry of Fellowship Baptist Church. And here's why I want you to think about this if you're, maybe when it comes to this topic, not an under the hood type person, okay? Whether or not it dawns on you, if you are a member of a church you are the last line of defense for the church's preaching ministry to stay on track. Are you with me? 
If something really goes awry and, and nobody is perfect and nobody is, is above, um, you know, falling off of Christian orthodoxy, you, friends, are the last line of defense. And so um, there may come a time where, you know, if we take the metaphor and extend it, you may actually, as a church member, have to open up the hood and figure out what's wrong here, okay? Number two, as a church, you uh, get a choice in who leads this particular ministry. Now, you don't, we don't take church, church votes on who leads every ministry of the church. Um, generally, that's, you know, the pastor appoints that person or whatever, or they're volunteer, you know, they're just... Um, wanting to be helpful or whatever. But when it comes to the preaching ministry, and we'll talk about the, the very big importance of it, you as a church select who's part of this, right? And I, I know you're all like, well, we already did that, you know, in September or August of 2021. But as I've said before, and I know this sounds silly to some of you, but I'm going to keep saying it, I am fallible. I could die. You know, at moments of the last two weeks, I kind of felt like I might die, you know what I mean? With this flu bee, my soul. And so it is pressing on me that what, what I think and what I think the Bible even shows us is a healthy approach to preaching ministry. It would, it would be important that we all, when we, if we have to bring in another vehicle, so to speak, and, and take a look and decide as a church what is the best fit for this church, that we're looking at for the right components, right? That we're looking for the right things that will carry our church from point A to point B. So this morning, if talking about the preaching ministry of our church is not really, you know, something you find yourself incredibly interested in, I'm going to ask you just for a few minutes to oblige uh, my request for you to engage with this topic because it's incredibly important. Because I think if we, if we all sat down and really thought about it, this, the preaching of the word of God is the vehicle that in so many areas carries our church from point A to point B. Are we in agreement on that? And if you're not in agreement on that, maybe by the end of this lesson, you will be. Maybe sometimes you have questions like this. How come most of our gatherings, we spend an uber amount of time on preaching. You know, why don't we sing for 40 minutes and preach for 20? Why isn't that the case? Or maybe you've asked, why do we always have to have preaching? Why does it always have to be, you know, generally one person who's speaking rather than a bunch of people? And there's a lot of different answers to those questions. But here's how I want to break down the lesson this morning. First of all, I, I want you to see the need for the word preached in the church gathering. Okay? Let's just talk about the need for the word being preached in general. And then the second half, I want us to talk about the value of a particular way of approaching the preaching ministry and, uh, and working through that, okay? Here's the first reason why as a church, we value preaching. And it's this, that if you survey the Bible, you see this theme that starts on the very first page of scripture that it is God's word that brings life to those who hear it and receive it. Think about this. One of the very first things, what is the very first thing God does in scripture? What is the very first thing he does? God 
speaks. And if you read Genesis 1, all the other intricacies and questions we have about Genesis 1, it's quite clear what the message is. God speaks and life begins, right? God speaks, life begins. And life begins, interestingly, when creation responds with obedience to the speaking of God. It's interesting to me in in Genesis 1 how Moses describes an inanimate creation, right? Um, God spoke and divided the night from the darkness, but it says basically that the night divided itself from the darkness. It's obeying God's word and life is being created. But it's not just Genesis 1. You see, God spoke and formed a people in Genesis 12, didn't he? He spoke and he called out Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldees. And it was that word, get thee from thy father's house, that began. It was the, a new genesis, if you will, of a family that in time would turn into a nation. That process of it turning into a nation kind of got temporarily derailed because Israel became enslaved to who? Egypt, right? But yet, the story turns once again by God speaking. Do you remember where God speaks in the Exodus and the whole story starts to change? Where did he speak? Out of what? A burning bush. And it's from that burning bush that God speaks his name and he calls his people to a life not of slavery but of freedom. God speaks once again from Mount Sinai and is formalizing and bringing a covenant with this national people. They were his people by the actions that he had committed to them. He had saved them out of Egypt. But really that process of being his people was not ratified and and, and in a covenant, so to speak, until Mount Sinai, where God is speaking once again from Mount Sinai. And then we keep traveling through the whole Old Testament narrative, and this, this people, this nation, Israel, has ups and downs and ups and downs, right? And at one point, their existence as a people, their life as a people, is in danger because now they're in slavery to another foreign nation, not Egypt, who was that other foreign nation they were enslaved to. Babylon, Babylon. That Babylonian captivity is the subject of several of the bigger books in the back of your Old Testament, right? Uh, Particularly Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, a little bit Isaiah, And it's in Ezekiel that Ezekiel's given this vision that represents what the nation was. It was a valley of dry, dead bones. And what's interesting, if you want to read Ezekiel 37, it's a wonderful passage of scripture. You're looking at a valley of dry, dead bones, which represents who Israel was. Their existence as a nation was basically done. And what is the force by which this valley of dry bones would come back to life? Well, in that vision, God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to these dry bones. And Ezekiel speaks the word of God and these dry bones, what happens? They go from being dry, dead bones to living, breathing people 
which shows once again that God's word brings life to those who hear it and receive it. Now, I'm not just going to speak through the Old Testament, but the New Testament really sums up this idea very well in Romans 10, 17. So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith, which brings life and salvation, right? It does not originate from us. We don't generate our own faith. It starts outside of us and it starts from the word of God that we hear. Now think about this. If you have somebody you know and you care about, like we just all admitted, you know, think about Easter, who is spiritually dead, who cares nothing about God, who is dead spiritually, what is the solution then? Is it to logically convince them? Is it to entertain them? No, the solution, the Bible says, is that if you want someone to have faith, there's one main way to produce faith. Get the word of God in their ears, okay? That's how we produce faith in people. That's why, church family, we invite people to church because if the word is not going into their ears, faith will not be produced, right? That's why as, as parents, we raise our children up in church and we give them the word of God at home because we need them to hear the word of God as much as possible because that is how faith comes. And it may not be something that the kids always want, is it? But they need it because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We don't receive faith by a gimmick or a strategy because the only thing powerful enough to produce life out of nothing is the word of God. But here's another theme we see in scripture that not only does the word of God produce life in us, but those who've received life from God, salvation from God, it builds our faith as well. That as God calls us as his people, just as he did with Israel and is forming us around not a nationality anymore, but around his son, Jesus Christ, we now are dependent on his word to grow and be nurtured in our faith, right? Um, think about what Jesus said to Satan. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting from Deuteronomy there. And it was the word if you were to read 2 Chronicles 34, I suggested in our weekly email that you could read that in preparation for today's lesson. And in 2 Chronicles 34, what happens is Josiah the king rediscovers the word of God. Imagine that. They just like lost it for a while. And he rediscovers the word. And what does he do? Imagine if I did this. He stands up in front of the congregation of Israel he takes the, the law, we suppose, probably just the first five books, and just reads through the law of God publicly to the nation of Israel. And what happens? As the people of God hear the words of God, reformation and revival over an entire nation begins to break out because people realize that what God had said they had not been doing for a very, very long time. A very similar thing happens in Nehemiah chapter number eight. 
And I love Nehemiah chapter number eight because it reminds me a lot of what we do from week to week um, as the word of God is proclaimed here. In Nehemiah chapter number eight, it talks about how they gave the sense. They read it and then they gave the sense of the scripture. Isn't that pretty similar to what we do? Read the scripture, give you the sense of it, right? What does it mean for you and for me? And so once and again, we see that God's word not only brings life to us, but it shapes us as his people. Read the Old Testament, read the Bible, and it is always around the word of God that God's people are being reformed and being shaped. I was reading this week. Uh, there's a very important time in church history in 15, 1600s called the Reformation. And this really, I think these two sayings kind of make up the difference between how life went between two types of churches. A lot of folks would be associated with the Catholic church and they had a motto. It was in Latin, of course, but um, it was, they took pride in everything always being the same. You know, we're doing things as it's always been done. But a lot of the churches in the Reformation who were breaking away from the Catholic Church, they had a different motto. Here was their motto. Always being reformed by the word of God. Always being reformed. So we're not always about being the same because when we sit under the word of God, it changes us, it reforms us, it shapes us as individuals. And the word of God corporately is supposed to bear down on our congregation and shape who we are as a church as well. John 17, 17 also summarizes this idea that Jesus prayed for his people, sanctify them, grow them, set them apart through thy truth. What is God's truth? Thy word is truth. What is the tool Jesus intended to use to set you apart, to make you more like who he is? It is the very word of God. Now, if the word of God has life-giving power and faith-building power, then it stands to reason that it must be prioritized in every gathering. Now, I know this is not new news to many of you, but that's why in 2 Timothy 4, under the immense pressure of the culture turning against God and believers abandoning truth, not just in their doctrine, but in their life that Paul exhorted Timothy to do one thing. He didn't say have a business meeting. He said, preach the word, 2 Timothy 4.2, because it was the preaching of the word that was God's chosen means of bringing together a people and building them for his glory, Right? So why does preaching matter as a church? It matters because as we read the scriptures, we see that the proclamation of God's word literally is the difference between life and death. We have to sense that. It is the difference between heaven and hell. This proclamation of God's word. The word of God contains so much power that it created the universe itself. Think about that. This is not something to trivialize. This is not something to dismiss. This is not something to treat as small. And so that's why as a church, we dare not trivialize the preaching time. It is 
very important. And uh, I've, I've even talked with Judson about this, even in our kids' service, though they certainly are not ready to handle a 40-minute sermon in an adult service, that does not mean that the preaching time is any less important in our kids' service. It doesn't mean that. When they go back there, there's a lot of things that sometimes have to get cut because like two weeks ago, there was a, when they were in here for 25 minutes before they got to go back and do their own thing. There's a lot of things that Judson can cut out of his service, but there's one thing he's not allowed to cut, and it's teaching the Word of God. And, and teaching the Word of God, there's not just watching a video. It is saying, here's the Bible, here's what it means to you, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ, because that's what our kids also need, right? Now think about this church family. If, if it is the word of God and it's proclamation that does these things, how much more so should you and I come prepared with prayer for our church gathering? I wonder this week if you've prayed about the preaching that would happen today. I wonder if you've prayed, not, not necessarily just for me, I'm saying for yourself. I mean, you're encountering the life-giving, faith-building word of God as a people of God. Have you prayed about it? Have you spent time in prayer and preparation for what you are to experience? And we need prayer because we know that the passing on the word of God is not just me trying to be filled with the Spirit and controlled by the Spirit and giving you something, but 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that the Spirit has to be work on both sides of the equation for the truth to be passed through. We impart, Paul says, spiritual things unto spiritual people. Meaning that, listen, listen, if there is a kink in the hose at either end, the water doesn't get through. So if I mess something up in and passing on the word of God, it doesn't get through. But if you are quenching the spirit in your own life and you are resistant to the spirit in your own life, it doesn't get through either. This is a two-way street, this preaching thing. If the word of God is important, this is something that's very important to me, then church family, we must desire and pray for more preachers of the word of God to be raised up in our own congregation. Because we don't want the ministry of the word to rise and fall on one or two individuals because sin happens. God calls people away. People die. People get the stinking flu, right? We need as many people as possible who are qualified spiritually and with gifts to preach the word of God and unleash its power on God's congregation. And lastly, what this means is if this is true, then there's not a single person in here who does not come to the gathering of God's people under God's word who is not to take the posture of a humble learner, a student. In this morning's message, you'll see, you wanna know what your posture should be under the word of God and under our savior? A child. Some of y'all are a lot older than children, all right? But that's your spirit. That's your posture. That's my posture, especially during the week, sitting under the word of God, because even the most seasoned saint, even the most godly Christian is nothing but a child in the presence of God's mighty word. And so we must come with a posture to learn from the 
words of our great God. We need to prioritize the word. But for the next few minutes, I just want to share with you the value of a certain way of communicating the word, okay? There's a lot of ways people preach the word of God, and I'm not saying it's unorthodox or morally wrong. You could do what I'm doing this morning, and that could be our bread and butter. I just take a topic and I show you verses from all over the place and piece it together. I could preach a passage of scripture and then preach a different one and a different one and a different one. But for the next few moments, what I want to share with you in case you've ever wondered, I probably should have done this two and a half years ago, explain this to you, that I, I want to share with you the value of expository preaching in a church gathering. Now, there's a lot of ways to define it, but just for the, the sake of what we're talking about here, here's what I mean. I'm talking about why do we as a church default? Not, it's not the only way we do it. But why, why do I feel strongly that we should default to preaching through books of the Bible? Straight through. And then as we preach through books of the Bible, I, I'm not trying to be creative. If, if you want a creative preacher, you hired the wrong fella. I don't know if you figured that out yet. I'm not a creative guy. But what we do is we take a chunk of scripture and we say, this chunk of scripture, its shape and its emphasis is going to be the shape and the emphasis of the sermon. And we just work book by book, right? We start in Philippians on Sunday mornings, and we did the book of James on Sunday nights. We did the seven letters to the churches on Sunday nights. Um, we did Habakkuk. Uh, we've been in Matthew for Lord knows how long. You know, we've been, in a, been in a, covering a little bit of ground. So why do we do that, okay? Here's a couple reasons. Number one, maybe it's never dawned on you, or you, you've, you've forgotten this, but a lot of biblical examples of preaching are expositional sermons. Let me give you a couple examples. The fifth book in your Bible is called Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy, I don't think is the actual Hebrew title of the book, but it's a good title nonetheless. It means second law. The reason it's called the second law is what most people argue Moses is doing there is he is preaching. It's, it's all orally dictated, the whole book of Deuteronomy. He is preaching an exposition of the Ten Commandments. And so the book of Deuteronomy loosely is arranged by order of the Ten Commandments. He's expounding on the intricacies of each of those because the Ten Commandments is kind of the foundation. And then all the little minute laws are all just built on top of that foundation. And Moses was leading the way for Josiah, who, as we talked about in 2 Corinthians 34, would uh, read in the people's hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. This is not a man jumping around from page to page. He's just reading through the whole thing. Or in Nehemiah 8.8, which I have the quote here, he read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Believe it or not, in your Bible, the book of Hebrews, several sections of it are expositions of the Psalms. Psalm 110 takes up Hebrews 3 and 4. He's just working through the meaning of Psalm 110 in light of Jesus Christ. The new covenant text in the book of Jeremiah is what the uh, two chapters of Hebrews 8 and 9 are expounding on, okay? So this idea of taking scripture 
And just explaining it to God's people as it lays on the page is not something I've created or some newfangled idea. It is something that is in the word of God. Here's another reason why we do this. Expository preaching recognizes that how scripture was given to us matters. Here's what I mean by that. How many of you heard the Bible called a manual for life? Manual for life, uh, a map, a, a set of instructions, how to live a blessed life. Those are all true. But here's where that metaphor falls short. If God were to just give us a manual for how to live life, he wouldn't need to give us one this thick. Like just the book of Proverbs basically is that. But he gave us a lot of other stuff. Not all of the Bible is written as a manual, is it? The Bible was given to us in a variety of different forms or genres or text types. What are some different types of ways that God gets across his message in the Bible? What are some ways God gets across his message? History or stories. You realize a huge, I don't know the percentage, a monster chunk of your Bible is stories. Well, that's not the most efficient way to write a manual for life. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot, I mean, read the story of David and Goliath, and it's really all about one truth, and it's like 60-something verses. I mean, why waste all the ink if you just want to give a manual for life, right? What else? Think of the book of Psalms. What, what type of, of literature is that? Poetry. I'm reading uh, in my devotions in the book of Daniel, and the book of Daniel is punctuated, interspersed poetry of praise to God from three different pagan kings to make a point, right? And so the Bible is given to us in poetry, not the most efficient form of communicating instructions for life. And so here's what we're recognizing, that if God wanted every sermon to be a how-to, don't you think he would have given us a book full of how-tos? But in God's wisdom, he did not give us a book full of how-tos. He gave us a book of a story about Cain and Abel. He gave us history. He gave us law. He gave us poetry. He gave us all sorts of different things. And so when, we, when I preach or when others preach, the goal is we're trying to say, look, there's a reason God did that. I, I can't explain all the reasons why, but we all agree that there must be a reason, right? God doesn't do stuff without reasons. And so when we proclaim the word of God, we respect not just the ideas in the scripture, but how those ideas are communicated to us in the scripture. Not just the ideas themselves, but the sequence of those ideas, okay? How they're in there. There's a reason there's, you know, my favorite part in Matthew is chapters five through seven, but there's some other stuff before and after that apparently was just as important, right? And so we want to cover that because that's how God gave us the scripture. And here's what I found. Maybe you found this too, that I think that our favorite texts of the Bible have more weight to them, not less, when we see them in their context. They have more weight, not less. Here's the next one. Expository preaching trusts that God knows what we need more than we do. 
Acts 20, 27 is where Paul talks about how he felt an obligation to preach the whole counsel of God to the Ephesians. Now listen, as a pastor, it's very tempting for me to say, here's what I think the church needs. You know, there's a lot of problems with that. Number one, um, it, it, I would end up preaching the same five things because, you know, the same five things kind of get in my cross sometimes. But here's what also is not good about that. I don't actually know what you need. I know that's a terrible admission of a leader. God knows what you need. And I don't need to like sit in my study and, and you know, wait for some magical intuition. I don't personally believe God leads that way 99.999% of the time. Here's what I do know. God, thousands of years ago, knew what you need because he inspired 66 books full of it. And I don't know if I really need to figure out which one you need that much because they're all full of good stuff because Paul had a way of saying that. He said, he said um, only the New Testament books are profitable for doctrine and instruction and reproof and correction and righteousness. No, 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 no. He said all of it is, right? He, you know what he's saying? He's saying, Timothy, you know, preach the word of God. You just pick a, pick a book and it's all good. It, it all accomplishes all the stuff you need it to accomplish. It all equips you in the way you need to be equipped. And so what we do as a church, here's what we're trusting. Here's what I'm trusting. Today, as I open up Matthew 18 to you, I'm just trusting, you know what? God knew you needed that on this day. He knew I needed that. And so we're just working through the scripture, trusting that our heavenly father knows what we need more than we do. Here's, here's kind of one saying I, I heard somewhere and I don't remember, but, but here's, it, here's what it is. If God cared enough to put it in the Bible, we should care enough to study it, right? If God cared enough to put in the Bible, we should care enough to study it. I gotta hurry. Here's the next one. Expository preaching models which should be done in a healthy Bible reading discipline. I don't know if I'm accomplishing this, but here's my goal. I want you to see, church, that every page of scripture is, is good. It's all good. And so my hope for you is that as I preach, you're, you're seeing that it's, it's, yeah, there's some work and, and praise God for a little bit of training and education I have in this whole ordeal, but it's not rocket science. It's really not that you're just looking at the word of God and you're watching me apply the very basic principles you should be applying as you read your Bible throughout the week. Well, let's, what does the context say? What are some repeated terms in this? How is Jesus's words evolving and and, and growing throughout this section of scripture so that when you go to the Bible, you know how to read it uh, sequentially through, right? I've said this a lot. I'm not trying to bash on devotional books or anything like that or a, 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 um, whatever those are called, the, the bread stuff in the back. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that, you know, as a Bible reader, jump in and just read the Bible how it lays, and you'd be surprised how really enriching it can be. Here's the last one. It's my favorite. Expository preaching safeguards against doctrinal error or hobby horse preaching. Everybody, everybody has hobby horses. Everybody. If you were the pastor, you would have them too. I've got some. I've got stuff that, um, you know, are, are things that, 
that, that I would tend to talk about way more than I should. But if we just let the variety of scripture govern the variety of the sermons, here's what's, what's great about this. If a topic comes up a lot, you, you can't blame me for it. You know? Um, it's just the word of God. And you can see if it's in the text or not. You know? Uh, it's not really hard to figure that out. If Mike's just pulling this out of thin air, if it's actually in there. And uh, this, this can guard a lot against a lot of bad things because we're all looking at the same text and we all know if, if someone's playing inside the boundary lines or not. And so as we gather around God's word today, here's what I want to exhort you to do. Let's pray that God's words bring life to unregenerate people. Let's pray that God's words bring strength to the saved and let's pray that they bring health to our church body. And let's all this morning as we sit under God's word, sit as pupils, students, learners, children, and ask our master to teach us once again. Father, we, we pray for the ministry of your word today, how important and powerful it is. We ask God you would speak and move in a special way in our hearts. We desperately need your word. We are weak. We are people who are withering away spiritually and physically. And so we need the life your word brings. Pray you'd speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church family.